some of you know, this uh, Buddhist studies program is in a six-year loop. And so we look at different aspects of the teachings from the Buddha over those six years, all of those different courses. But the one course that gets repeated a couple times during the six years is the loving-kindness course. So uh, partly it's because it seems like um, our culture and our minds have a lot of aversion. <laughs> and one of the, one of the nice... Uh, direct effects of understanding more deeply and then creatively integrating the teachings of loving kindness into our lives is it addresses that conditioning, that aversive conditioning, those aversive habits of the mind, counteracts them. Um, and really, with, with devoted practice, really, uh, for sure, temporarily can suppress all of the aversion in the mind. And then over time, really begins to weaken the force of aversion, of irritation, of impatience, of boredom. I mean, aversion has so many expressions beyond the obvious ones of fear and hatred and anger, you know, rage. But a lot of subtle, pervasive emotional habits that if you're like me, like being controlling, for example, and impatient, which is kind of often my temperament, you know, that's aversion. And loving kindness is a very direct, powerful way both to illuminate and to understand what that conditioning is and what it isn't, but also to get a little relief from it, not to be so under the heel of it, feeling oppressed by our habit energy. So I'm just mentioning that uh, this is why it's just a three-week course. We did it last year. We did it a few years before that. And we can't, you know, it has so many, there are so many different facets of the practice of loving kindness. In fact, I think we could do the whole six-year Buddhist studies class as different ways of understanding loving kindness. So when we talk about tranquility, we talk about it in terms of loving kindness, or we talk about energy and effort, and we talk about it in terms of loving-kindness. Really, the whole path, the whole spiritual life can be understood in terms of love. That's why Casey tattooed it on his fingers. <laughs> Take a look when you get close. <laughs> Long time ago, right? <laughs> but it's, it's almost a cliché. You know, this is the trouble with things like love. It's like, on the one hand, we think we already understand it. So we don't really take it up as an investigation. Or our mind has been tainted, you know, and we kind of think love is sort of stupid or sentimental or, you know, we've been burned with it. Like, not, I'm not talking about even romantic love, where most of us have been burned a number of times. But even like just the love of ideas, the love of spiritual ideas, We've been burned. A lot of us have been burned. And we get cynical. And we begin to want to dismiss the whole idea of love or kindness or friendliness. And we start to unconsciously have this attitude that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world or, you know, and that life sort of demands a tough, callous, uh, reactive stance 
Otherwise, we're just going to be pushed around by the meanness of life. And so we want to, in this class, even though it's just three weeks, and then just forever in our lives, we want to resurrect the idea, at least, of love. You know, kind of bring it up. We need we need a word, whether you want to use friendliness or love or kindness or loving kindness or whatever you, word you want to use, sympathy. You know, we need a word that we can sort of uh, kind of remi- use to remind ourselves to to see, like, does this word and what it represents, does it help illuminate the life that's being lived? Does it allow for more skillfulness? Does it help us sort of break free of habits, like the habit of being irritated or impatient or controlling or being a victim, you know, and helpless and uh, despairing, resigned? you know, whatever our particular habit is. So I thought for tonight, and feel free uh, in, in this class, often it's really okay to interrupt me as I'm talking if you have any questions about what I'm saying. But I, you know, as I was fl- reflecting on it today and I wanted to take a different approach than I have over the years. And you know, loving kindness is something I talk a lot about in different ways over in all the different programs. So I was thinking about three or four ways that the force of kindness, love, manifests in my life. And I think they come out of the teachings of the Buddha pretty well. But I didn't try to sort of find a list in the Buddhist teachings. And so I just want to talk about metta or loving kindness in these four ways. In a way, it they sort of are sequential in the in the sense that, like first I'm going to talk about metta as a protection, loving kindness that we can sort of take up to protect ourselves. So it sort of reflects different levels of density. You know, sometimes the life that's being lived is pretty dense, pretty primal. Right? And the emotions, the qualities of the, our mind, it's primal. Like we feel like we're just getting by, we're just surviving, and we're looking for something to stand on or something to be to protect us. And so when our life is dense in that way or heavy in that way, then the way loving kindness is going to be of value is going to also be dense, relatively speaking. And so protection, let me talk about that first. So loving kindness as protection. So here, the practice or any kind of reflection we might do, what is it going to be motivated by? It's like we're feeling despairing. We're feeling a victim. We're feeling threatened by life in one way or another. So we turn to the practice of loving kindness you know, as a protection. So it's really motivated by fear, like fear that we're going to fall into hell or fear that something bad's going to happen or we're going to be crushed by life or by something. So we pull out loving kindness. It's sort of our, you know, fearless knight in white armor or something or on a white horse kind of riding to our rescue. And so, you know, that's 
not only dualistic, it's a, it's a, um, you know, it's a construction of our mind. But it's a more wholesome construction than the thought, I'm screwed. Or, you know, that I'm going to fight fire with fire. So I'm going to fight the meanness of life by being a bigger jerk than everybody else. Or being better at manipulating than everybody else. Or like I, I you know, this is my thought. I mean, I, I don't mean to be political, but I think it, it sort of uh, is telling that that it seems in politics now that there's this whole, this sort of like a Russian roulette thing going on, and that if you're willing for the whole thing to go down the drain, you get really powerful, because some people don't want the whole thing to be flushed down the drain, and so. If you get a sense that your opponents are like willing to let the whole thing go down the drain to get their way, you know, how do you counteract that? So in this kind of world, you know, we can feel pretty helpless. And so we're, we're beginning, you know, uh, often it's just because someone has suggested, you know, like in, in the Buddhist tradition, for example, uh, one of the messages that sort of gets broadcast pervasively, like it's not considered a deep teaching, is sort of the power of metta. And even in, in a sort of folk religious way, like even the discourse that we read or chanted earlier, it's considered a protecting force. Literally something you could pull out. You, you happen to have to walk down a dark alley late at night, and you're frightened, you hear a sound, you know, you can pull it out, you can take out the metta chant, and just start chanting it. You know, in, in Asian cultures, Buddhist cultures, it's considered to give you power, protective power. Or like, uh, there's an example in the Buddhist teachings of, um, you know, in uh, the Buddhist time, the elephants were like today's tanks. And they were trained, you know, probably from birth or from an early age to sort of be the tanks of the armies and to be fierce. And anyway, uh, Devadatta, the Buddha's evil cousin, uh, conspired with a prince in this one little fiefdom where the Buddha was teaching uh, to use the chief elephant of the army to kill the Buddha. So they got the elephant drunk, and then they beat it, got it really angry. And they knew the Buddha would be walking down this narrow alley or road. And uh, at a certain time, coming back or going to get his meal for the day to collect alms, the meal from people. And so they you know, got this elephant really mad and had it charging down this alley, just as the Buddha and the other monks and nuns were walking down. And so you know, Ananda, his attendant, kind of stood there to sort of protect the Buddha. And the Buddha said, Ananda, <laughs> go away for a moment. <laughs> and and what the Buddha did, I mean, as the story goes, is radiated loving kindness for this crazy, crazed elephant. And the elephant calmed down before it got to the Buddha and knelt down, you know, in front of the Buddha. And the Buddha patted it on his trunk or on his forehead or something like that. So these kind of stories, uh, they're basically um, helping to inspire people that when you feel desperate, when you feel you have nowhere to turn, 
no real like power in your life, then check out love. Check out the power of love, even as an idea. You know, because you could check out the power of love and then realize I can't feel any love and then hate yourself as well as being in a difficult situation. So it's easy, you know, when we're in a negative space of mind, it's easy to just, whatever we do, to sort of fall back in that same attitude of being negative. But here, like, if you have, like, one of the things we want to be able to do when we're in this place of needing protection, which we're not always in, but sometimes we're in that place where we have the strong feeling, I need protection, then we, we're, because our mind is dense, we want to just be able to bring out the information. That may be all we can do is remember the information. We, we're probably not going to be that capable of feeling sublime feelings of loving kindness. But we might remember, we might be able to remember, I think love is good. You know, I think, I think love, I think kindness has a power that surpasses all of the meanness, all of the confusion in life. Right? That we could possibly remember if we train ourselves. How do we train ourselves? Well, whenever we do feel inspired by love, when we do have contact with it, we kind of think about it as a protection. Like we're, we're basically dressing it up. Wow! By recognizing how wholesome it is, by being inspired by these stories. You know, there are stories like this through all kinds of religious, spiritual traditions. Even, you know, just in our own life, you know, you have to look, but if you read enough news, you know, there are stories, really beautiful stories of kindness every once in a while that are inspiring. Even, you know, between pets and humans and moms and children and, you know, just experiences where people manifested some extraordinary power of love in different ways, devotion, perseverance, fearlessness. And the great thing about what, you know, as we then experiment with it, like there we are in the dark alley or there we are, you know, feeling helpless and we look at our cat and we notice that there, with our life seemingly falling apart around us, we realize that I care about you, honey. And, and how that recognition that the heart has the capacity to care about the dog or cat or care about another person, like you're walking home and just have lost your job and you see somebody who's homeless, you know. And just that simple moment of caring it, it, it provides a sense of space or protection from the kind of cycling down into hell as the mind obsesses about why me or why I can't hold on to a job or why nobody loves me or whatever we might, whatever kind of dark, heavy space we might be caught in, obsessing in. We want to see that in all the little ways the power of metta, the power of love. And, uh, and really 
begin to like remind ourselves that we're not helpless. That there's actually something to do. There's always something to do, and that this is this is sort of a liberating feeling that no matter how dark, how heavy our conditioning, the habit energy that's gotten triggered in the mind because of circumstances, let's say someone breaks up with us, we lose our job, we read something that's really shocking or depressing about the world. And uh, and just this recognition, this realization that whatever negative state of mind has been triggered, we're not, that's not sort of the whole truth, that there's always something we can do. We don't have to just fall into hell when that's what's happening. And then we may not know how to bring in love or compassion, but there can be the recognition that we can do something. We can experiment. There's got to be a way. I know there's a way. I know there's a way to care about this because we've seen it enough times in our life, the transforming power of a moment of kindness or a moment of love or a moment of forgiveness or a moment of gratitude or a moment of compassion. You know, all the different expressions of love. And so it's almost like then, then it's just a matter of like finding a way, like experimenting. A part of the teaching here, too, is uh, like a perseverance, like not giving up, that there's something to do. And that, that uh, and you see, this, is, this really protects us because even, even if it's just a sliver of confidence, when, like I mentioned earlier, when we do uh, something painful or difficult happens and we triggers our negative conditioning, the tendency is for it to snowball, you know, to pick up steam. And the more sort of the bigger the feeling is, then the generally the more we're identified with the feeling. You know, the stronger the emotion, the more the pain, the more we the pain causes an identification. This is happening to me. It's my pain. This is my problem. So that that me, my, that identification, that the, the tendency is it for it to squeeze everything out of the mind. So then the problem becomes the only thing. So this is the, the way concentration works. When we're concentrated on something, in this case something negative, it becomes our whole world. So it really does look like the whole thing. Like there's nothing but this problem. There's nothing but my failure to my failure in love, my failure in the job, my failure to take care of myself. It really like the whole world looks like the problem because the mind has gotten concentrated. Now it works both ways. You know, when we concentrate on something beautiful, all the meanness gets squeezed out. That's what you know the blissful experiences of concentration is. When we really look at something beautiful, inward or outward or inward, we get some real freedom from the negative forces. But it happens both directions. Concentration is a neutral thing. It's not always 
positive. We can get really fixated on a negative state. But when we have this sense of metta as a protection, even if it's a sliver, then we just want to work it. You know, we're not... The nice thing is that it gives us another thing to do than to hate the feeling of falling into hell. Because part of that momentum of falling into hell is not wanting to fall into it. You know that, I'm sure you've had this experience, like something's happening and we don't want it to happen. And it's like there's a well-greased well, you know, and we just don't want to fall into it. And But the more we scramble, the more we fall. Like, like an example might be, you know, when you're in relationship with somebody who you really, you know, are attached to and they don't like you anymore or something like that. And so you're desperately trying to make them like you. Well, all that does, of course, is convince them, you know, I should have gotten out of this relationship a long time ago or something like that. You know, because what are we in that moment? We're a desperate animal. You know, we're not a charming person that somebody would want to be around. And so we just, you know, the, the breakup just proceeds with greater speed. Like the person doesn't even want to make it smooth. They just want to be out of there or something like that. And this happens in all kinds of ways. So that little sliver gives the mind something else to do than to hate what's going on, than to struggle with what's going on, which is basically that snowballing effect. So it doesn't even matter, actually, if we're like successful but just that we have a sense that there's something else to do than to hate being in a negative place, being in a difficult place. That somehow hatred and reactivity and struggle are skillful or appropriate. That's the key. And that's why it's a protecting force. And that's why all we need to do is remember it, however primitive that remembering is. Like, I know there's something to do, but I can't remember, you know. And then you get your Dharma books out, and oh yeah, chapter on loving kindness, I think, you know. And, and it sort of like rings a bell. Oh yeah, I'll just read this. So don't be, uh, don't think this is stupid. This sort of primitive. I'm just going to listen to a Dharma talk, you know, put on a, a tape or read a chapter or, you know, just repeat a word, love, love, you know, or whatever. These things have power because of what they represent. Even if we can't fully understand what they represent, you know, it isn't. People haven't, you know, walked around with crosses around their necks, or, you know, in Buddhism, their amulets, these little, you know, things that Buddhists in Asian countries carry, you know, that have. Seem, supposedly have power. These sort of what we might consider superstitious things, they may not have magical powers as people imagine that they have, but they do, they do act as reminders that whatever is oppressing the mind right now isn't the whole thing. So that's a little crack, a little break 
and the tendency of the mind to get completely absorbed in negative states and you know negative belief systems or obsessions. So we can be a little bit more sophisticated instead of like objects, you know, like a Buddha statue. We can actually uh, something that's slightly more powerful than that is actual information. You know, to be able to access information, a particular teaching. And to have memorized it is great, because then you don't have to be able to get your book or have your MP3 player where you can play your Dharma talk, you know. You can actually repeat back to yourself a couple sentences, or maybe you've memorized the Metta Sutta or something like that. And you've practiced it enough that when your mind is really in a fit, you could still bring it up because it has a deep imprint in the mind. And you'll see this makes a difference to be able to do this. I've been doing different kinds of chanting for almost 30 years now. And then besides that, as a Catholic, you know, being raised in a traditional Catholic setting where you do a lot of prayers, we used to sit at home with my family, my big family, and do the rosary during Lent. And I prayed every night, got on my knees, next to my bed, like kind of stereotypic thing. So. I, I learned this right from the beginning. I like that. I used to see how many Hail Marys I could do before I went to bed at night. You know, I check with my sister in the morning, you know, who did more. And I had my Saint Joseph and my Saint Francis statues, and I loved them as a kid. You know, they were like symbols of safety. They represented something powerful and beautiful. That I didn't understand, of course, as a kid. I didn't understand the prayers. I wasn't even really listening to the words. But there was the, the activity, you know. This is why people build big cathedrals or pretty calm, tranquil meditation centers, is because they, they act as a symbol. So even if we don't practice just coming to common ground or just remembering common ground, you know, it can have an effect on the mind. So let's just experiment in the, these weeks and then beyond that with the using metta in this very primitive, primal way, you know, as a sort of a, a symbol that reminds us that no matter how mean or heavy or dark the world, life seems at any time, it's not the whole truth. I may not be able to access it or fully realize it, but there is still something beautiful something protecting. There is really still a refuge. So I may get beat up. I may be pushed around. I may be torn apart. But that isn't the whole truth. And that makes a big difference when, because you know, it doesn't matter who you are. You may be a holy person with you know, powerful insights and love. But life can still beat you up. You know, this is great from the Buddhist tradition. Moggallana, who was the Buddha's number two guy, you know, um, he died, you know, when he died for some, you know, causes and conditions, he got, you know, beat up in a terrible way. That was how he died in the end, you know. He was this great, great saint at the time, you know, and, and taught many of the monks and nuns um, helped the Buddha teach a lot of the monks and nuns and lay people for years and years. So, you know, there are a lot of causes and conditions. So just because we've sort of 
done a lot to develop the wholesome qualities of mind, doesn't mean we won't be in a tsunami, or doesn't mean we won't be mugged, or doesn't mean we won't get cancer, or doesn't mean, you know, who knows what might happen to us. And so, regardless of who we are, we want, when things are rough, when the mind does fall apart because we're getting Alzheimer's, we want to be able to practice in really primitive ways as a doorway into something that's beyond the heaviness or the difficulty. So that's one way that we work with metta. Another way, a more subtle way now, that we work with loving kindness is uh, really as a practice of wisdom. And this is what we emphasized last year for those of you who took the, I think it was a three-week class last year in loving kindness, really looking at loving kindness as a doorway into what in Buddhism we call right view. So wrong view generally, or in a general way, just means being caught in self-centered thinking, self-centered ideas, self-centered views. It's about me. It's about good and bad. Good and bad in terms of what I like and what I don't like. And right view is being able to go beyond that. And you'll see this like... uh, one of the experiences, just doing the formal loving-kindness practice, is one, and, and I'm bringing it up because we want to notice how uh, doing the formal loving-kindness reflection and then just more generally remembering love, remembering kindness and forgiveness during the day, notice how it changes your view, like how the world looks. The world looks different. People look different, seem different, not because they're actually different, but because we're experiencing the world through a different view. The world is colored differently. You know, the mind that is experiencing my life is different because it's now under the influence of love as opposed to aversion. So we want to see that the different ways we bring love up, that we turn or orient, focus on love, kindness, it changes our world. And we're really getting like uh, the world is a fluid place depending on the mind, the way the mind is shaped. It's not that the world changes, but the mind that's knowing the world is changing depending on the different view that's predominating at the particular time. You know, we've all experienced that, but now we're just going to be a good student of that shifting like when we're depressed or when we're irritated, everything irritates us. And when we're in a good place, it's like like when I think from a poem, this great line, like as if everything is lit from within. Isn't that a nice way of saying And it does. It's like everything seems to be alive with love or light or beauty. Whoever, whatever we look at, the sidewalk, a child's face, it just like has a sort of a resonance or beauty that is inspiring. But it's not like, you know, it's different than it was yesterday. But the capacity of the mind, the subtlety of the mind is different. The view to which the world is being known is different. So the first way of practicing, remember, was being motivated by fear, like fear that I'm going to fall into a more negative state So we pull out love. 
Now this other way, this next way of practicing or expressing love is really being motivated by desire, right? It's like we're beginning to have a sense that, oh my God, you know, this thing we call love or kindness or metta, it's really interesting. It's really powerful. And it's like we're attracted to it. We're attracted to understanding it, to reflecting on it, to investigating it. It's like a, a, you know, a relatively wholesome obsession. I mean, if we're going to be obsessed with something, we should be obsessed with loving kindness. You know, and the capacity of the mind or heart to be relating, to be sort of um, living life through the experience of affection and kindness and patience. Like just, and getting clever at just different ways at sort of being reminded of it. We begin to sort of have a taste, like in Buddhism sometimes we call it a field of merit. Like there's something, like we're attracted to it, not like uh, we'd be attracted to Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but because what we're noticing that, you know, in this ephemeral world, the effect of loving kindness, it has a resonance that's much more pervasive and deep and lasting than all of the other pleasant experiences that we have. You know, and like in the Buddhist cosmology, again, I'm not, you don't need to take this as a literal truth, I mean, but who knows? I'm not saying it's not a literal truth. But for those people who are able to cultivate deep absorptions into love and compassion and joy and equanimity, the four beautiful emotions as the Buddha described them, before Brahma Viharas in Pali, that they would be reborn. If they didn't have full enlightenment, full realization, then they'd be reborn in the next life in these subtle realms and have very, very long lives. And, you know, this like, when you read the text, it's like incalculable eons, existence, as pure love, no body even. You know, the, the realm of existence is so subtle, you don't even need a body. You're basically, uh, your life is pure love or pure compassion for a long, long time. And the idea here, and the important idea here, is that as we begin to do, you know, just to reflect on love, we're noticing that it has a stability. Love as an emotion, compassion as emotion, joy as an emotion, it has a depth or an immeasurable quality or a resonance because it's not a self-creation. It's not something that Mark constructed in my mind. Like when I get angry, it's because my mind, you know, in this relative sense, has constructed a problem. Like Louise looked at me the wrong way, so she probably doesn't like me anymore. And then, you know, I add in, you know, oh, yeah, I remember that. I said something to her that might have bothered her. You know, we kind of fill in the details and we construct something that justifies the uneasiness that we have that makes it all make sense. But it's a lot of work, that construction. So all of our problems take a lot of work. And so we got to keep patching it up to make it make sense. But love, these beautiful emotions aren't like that. They're just the opposite. It's like they have 
the less you do, the more you see the natural resonance of these emotions. And so it has a flavor of this field of merit, like it's really good to investigate, to be interested in love. It's like there's a kind of healing in that. And then here, it really helps us clarify something about the path. You know, in Buddhism especially, but also in other spiritual traditions, there's a lot of emphasis on renunciation and seclusion. You know, that the world is like mean and a lot of corruption, and so we should retreat from that, otherwise we'll get corrupted. But the more we start understanding, you know, and, and being attracted, having that wholesome desire for the deepening understanding of love, the deepening expression of love, the more that we understand that seclusion isn't about seeing the world as a bad place. It's really what we're interested in is seclusion or retreating from greed and aversion, from particular negative qualities of the mind. It's not the world itself is never a problem. You see, that's a really important shift in practice. Because then we realize the whole thing is happening in the heart, in the mind. And it's not so much about who we ended up marrying or who we end up, you know, working with or that we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to sort of be skillful in whatever situation arises because it's all about the qualities of the mind and working with that like orienting toward wholesome qualities like love and abandoning unwholesome qualities. So this is at this stage now where we have some skill with protection and so that gives us some stability. And then we start getting really interested in love, attracted to, in a wholesome way, attracted to the, to the beauty and the depth, the resonance of love. And then that sort of sets up the experience of a more natural uh, way of working, being with love, with these wholesome emotions. And you could call this love, like working with love in terms of dana. And dana, you know, is the word for generosity usually, but it's really more about this cycling of energy, the free flow of energy or emotion, I guess, in this case. Freely giving, freely receiving. So it's, it's not just about loving, but it's also about receiving. And it's where we're beginning to have moments, at least, where we see that love does its own work or wisdom you know does its own work and we don't have to do it so you know like the more we get interested and attracted in that second stage the more we're beginning to to sort of uncover that natural wellspring that love just moves and and it's like we take the lid off and the well the sort of spring the flow is just there Initially, you know, it feels like we've got to do the investigative work. We've got to kind of whip up the metta and sort of bring it up and kind of maintain it and using various, you know, techniques that we've learned. But then at times we see that it has its natural intelligence. Love has its natural intelligence and by its very definition or its very 
nature, it moves. And there's no beginning or end to that movement. And there isn't anybody doing that movement. And so this is where the giving and receiving, then the practice here is learning to get out of the way and to trust. And, and, and the hard part in this part of the practice is not to be afraid of joy, not to be afraid of the good feeling of that movement, not to be afraid of it in the sense of like needing to do something about it or needing to hold on to it so it doesn't go away, because it will go away. You know, we will probably will get pulled back into a more dense state of mind eventually. That's okay, because it doesn't negate this truth. It just means we're not aware of it right now. We can't maybe access it right now. It doesn't mean it's not true. And so when it is, when we are, when the mind is realizing this movement, this natural giving and receiving, so the receiving part is like feeling how good it is to love, you know, how good it is to care, how good it is to appreciate, how good it is to, be grat- to have gratitude. So even when you're really taking care of somebody in a difficult place, like I often give the example of somebody who's dying or Kyoko talked about, some of you know Kyoko Karayama and uh, the wife of Eric Stahl who just died a couple months ago. And uh, near the end, you know, he sometimes would just be vomiting and have diarrhea and just in a really bad place. And Kyoko, of course, just had to take care of him and clean him up. And of course, it was really difficult. But even though, in, you know, it was actually really difficult to see, you know, the vomit, to see the diarrhea. But, so, it's not like that goes away, but the, uh, but the love, that the compassion can also at the same time uh, sort of be a really beautiful thing. And this is like, uh, so the, that even in the, even in sort of the worst case scenario, there's still a receiving. It's not just somebody serving somebody because we're married and it's for better and worse when you get married or when you have a partner. But it's that there's actually both a giving and a receiving going on. There can be, you know, when we're in that place. Nature is doing nature's work here. And so this really brings us to then the fourth, and I'll just leave it here. So this is where then metta, you can probably see where this is going. You know, metta, loving kindness, has nothing to do with anybody. It isn't something somebody's doing. So it's really nature doing nature's work. And so here, it's not even, it's not even, there isn't even somebody, like in the third stage, where we're, we're sort of learning to sort of manage or learning to relax with the joy, the beauty of that giving and receiving, that natural movement. Here, there isn't anybody having to do any work at all. So it gets really peaceful. So this is the interesting thing how love eventually, you know, in moments, so we don't, it's not like we have to go through all three stages before we touch four, you know. Four may be more rare, but it's still probably we're touching these moments from time to time where the quality of love arises, but it's very peaceful. It isn't isn't like effortful in any way. 
it's so natural. It's like uh, it's not like you're doing anything special. And really, you know, Buddha, in Buddhism, it makes this is an important point that actually metta, the best definition of metta is the absence of any aversion in the mind. When there's no self-centered aversion in the mind, then the most beautiful state of love is there by definition. So love actually, in the end, isn't anything at all. It's really more about the cessation of the self-centered aversion. When that ceases, when that is dropped, isn't being recreated by a neurotic mind, then love is the most natural, effortless, peaceful thing. So I'll... uh, I'm, I've got this almost done, but I'll, I'll kind of refine it a little bit, and I'll send it in the next email so you can have these four points to reflect on. And you can just sort of look for all four. You know, just So basically, you're just being mindful in your day and in your sitting, and you're just noticing when you need protection, and then you, then you practice on that level, or noticing when you feel relatively stable, and you're just interested in wholesome emotions. So why not get interested in love and interested in the other wholesome emotions? Allow that natural attraction, you know, and, and in a sense we're uncovering it in that moment of our life, how, whatever we're doing. And then maybe moments where you're really feeling the movement of wholesome emotion, of love in this case. And you're just learning not to get attached to the joy, to the wonderful feeling of the movement of love, just letting it do its thing. And then maybe having moments where it gets very easy and nobody's doing anything. And being skillful is the most natural thing in the world. Being appropriate in whatever situation you're in is the most natural thing. It's not like you have to try to be appropriate or try to be skillful. It's just happening. Wisdom and love are doing their work naturally. So here, of course, would, the fourth would be any need for a personal motivation. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. If you have any thoughts for the, the group from your own practice, how this makes sense, or any questions about any of these four points that I've made that seem relevant. What comes to mind? Yeah, Casey. So if you said, like, uh, you know, if you're just sitting on the park bench and it feels great, and it's just, you know, you're just enjoying your breath and your body, and whatever's happening in the park, it's like the trees and the sounds out there. And that's effortless, you know. Would you say that's kind of like you were born Yeah. But the, the thing to look for there is, is the mind still learning how to completely relax with the beauty and the joy? Or is that, in that moment, not, is there no, none of that activity? You know, Because joy is the hardest thing to really relax with, to really let be impersonal. 
you know, and that's what really sets joy free. And any kind of sense that this is happening to me, even if it's very subtle, is, is sort of constraining it in a subtle way. So that's what you're looking for. And then there will be moments when the heart, mind is completely relaxed with the joy, and there will be times when it's not completely relaxed with it. So, you know, you might kind of be going back and forth a little bit. The third, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and basically, like the 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 wholesome Dharma coach in the mind doesn't need to give any instructions to the mind, so that the peacefulness of the fourth is because the the mind recognizes there is nothing that needs to be done. And so it's really peaceful. And it really shifts from sort of the obvious emotion being joy, because we're really happy that it's so beautiful. So there's still somebody who's really happy that it's beautiful, to realizing that we don't even need to be somebody who, who is recognizing that it's beautiful. We don't even need that stance to be the somebody who's recognizing how beautiful it is. But that can kind of fall away, too, in a moment. Yeah, but that would still be three. It's like trying to figure out how to be in this amazing place. Yeah, and, and four is when you figured it out. Or the mind has figured it out, and it's just relaxed. You know, it, it's, it's just letting nature be nature, let nature do nature's work. And everything's perfect, you know, and everything's okay. I mean, that was like, <laughs> the, you know, I don't consider, I mean, my practice is not over, but the, the, the deeper insights I've had, you know, the, the way that I would describe it, if somebody asked me, like, what, what was it like? It's like this big neon, it's okay. You know, it's like deep sort of kind of resonant, like, it's okay. It's always been okay. It can't be not okay. You know, that that's the flavor of touching, you know, in my case, briefly, for. It's like, it's okay. And then, of course... When we're back at three, we're really excited that it's all okay. <laughs> and when we're in two, we want to do something to get back there, you know, in a wholesome way, because otherwise we slide to one, or we'll go into hell, and we want to protect ourselves because we're so greedy to get back. Yep, the pendulum. <laughs> yeah. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Todd, and then Jonathan. Yeah, I think the, the formal practices, the formal reflections where you actually are systematically redirecting your attention toward gratitude, toward forgiveness, toward loving kindness. So you're aiming the mind or focusing the mind and sort of, you know, in a skillful way, 
no, not there, honey. Let's let's pay attention to this thought. Let's think in this way. Um, because we were interested and we've sort of tasted something that we're, in a wholesome way, uh, aspiring to. Yeah, basically, but, but just more generally, it's, direct, it's like directing the mind. And so we're not just letting the mind do what it's doing. We're actively feeling the, the advantage or the benefit of directing the mind and that. And then the third, the work in the third is to be interested in the joy and how, and how to really set the joy free. Because that's what we want to do. And so what we're doing is we're teasing out all the ways the mind, are relating, the mind is relating to the joy that's not useful. So we're getting interested, mindful of the joy, the ease, the bliss, the movement, and teasing out everything that's extra. Oh, wait, I think Jonathan was next, and then you, Bob. Sorry. Um, well, this is kind of is about teasing out things that are extra. Uh, I've been doing meta practice as an antidote to negative emotional states for some time, and have found a fair amount of unbinding about that. Yeah. But I also almost always get to a point where I feel like I'm getting attached to that, and then, of course. Well, you just described, Jonathan, sort of the natural movement from between one and three. You know, negative state, pull out the method because you're desperate. You know, and then you see, oh, it's really working. You know, and you get start to get some joy, some natural movement, and you get attached to it. So the third stage of practice is a lot more subtle than the first two, because here. Your work, and so this is where, when you do get there, where you get some relief, you got to be ready to do the work of three, which is to see what's getting in the way of the joy being set free, the movement being set free, and you'll see, oh, this attachment's not necessary. Although in two, some kind of attachment, you know, I don't know if you want to use that word, but attraction to the power of love and kindness is useful. Because it, it motivates us to go repeat the phrase again, or whatever, how we're directing the mind. Right? We need some energy in the mind to redirect the attention back in a particular way. So that comes from being attracted. We have some aspiration or some sense that there's something good here to get. Yeah. And Bob, you get the last word. Well, say, say that again. I, I miss what I miss what the problem is like. So, when you said you really want, what is it that you want again? Well, once I like in tonight's session, um, you know, once I start to experience some of the letting go and mm-hmm. joy of that, then I just do that. But that's 
Oh, so you drop the phrases, you mean? I swear, I don't really do when I meditate anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's good to know, you know, it's it's not so easy to know in the middle of the sit what we should do because there's really no right answer. So, you know, there's two approaches. One is to just let the mind do what it does. And the other is to decide at the beginning and stick to it no matter what happens. So even though this may, you know, the mind is attracted, no, we're... We're sort of disciplining the mind. Okay, I know the mind's doing this. But even though you may stick with the sort of formal loving-kindness practice, remember, the formal loving-kindness practice is mindfulness of love, mindfulness of the wholesome emotion of love, the wholesome movement of love. So we have some tricks, like remembering a person and the repetition of phrases, and that's really the anchor but when the actual movement becomes obvious, we can let go of those anchors and just pay attention to the movement. But as soon as the movement doesn't exist as an object for awareness, then we pick up the more concrete aspects of the practice again. We go back to the phrases in remembering the person or the group of people. Does that answer the question a little bit? So you might, um, yeah, you might then, it's okay to go back and forth if there is if the joy arises, that's fine. And, and one thing that I'll do, you might have an intermediary place where you drop sort of the more elaborate phrases and you just have one word that you may repeat occasionally to give a little bit of a tether to the joy, the movement of joy. So you might just repeat the word love or whatever word resonates for you. Uh, and that may help you be able to stay more just in that movement of love. 